You are listening to a sermon from Mission Point St. John. We hope this message encourages a deeper connection between you and Jesus, our Savior. begin by telling you that the inspiration for this message, for this title of the message, came from Brother Jocelyn as he was preaching our midweek Bible study. I had already had out, planned for what I was going to preach, and um, I, I was trying to figure out how to bring it about in the way that, that I felt compelled to, and one statement that he made uh, during his preaching really stuck out to me. I noticed that he's uh, not here with us this morning. He's probably down uh, teaching the young people, but um, I'm sure a word will get back to him. And uh, He said, God is with you. He is with you. If there is ever a time, we need to be reminded of that very thing. I believe that that time is now. And so for the next few moments, I'm going to be speaking on that very topic. He is with you. I have had the privilege of going on the fishing boat with my wife's father, grandfather, and brother. They took me out on a day that appeared to be clear skies. We got up early in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning. Who knew that 4 o'clock came two times in a day? And we got up, we went out to the wharf, and uh, it seemed, like I said, clear skies, smooth sailing. We were looking forward to going out, only to get out into the Escuminac Bay the Miramichi Bay, and have the winds pick up and begin tossing the boat around. I don't do well with stormy seas. I get a little green around the gills. My wife, however, she grew up on a fishing boat. Her and her family, they don't even bat an eye when the waves are crashing up over the sides of the boat. To them, this is completely normal. They have set sail on many stormy seas. They know how to chart the waters. They know how to point the boat in the right direction to avoid capsizing. But this country boy from little old Hatfield Point, that's another story. I like the ground. It doesn't move around on you. I always know where it's going to be. When I wake up in the morning and I put my feet on the floor, I've never had it happen that it has just wandered away on me. It's always been there to support me, and I I thank the Lord for that. But the waves, that's another story. What was a beautiful, calm day turned into a nightmare for me. And in the end, they had to take my sea legs back to the wharf so that they could go back out to continue their fishing. My wife and her family, they got home that day, walked into the house, to me, still queasy. And I told them that they were all crazy. That's many of us, though, isn't it? We enjoy the calmness. We don't like it when things get tumultuous. Our prayer isn't usually, test our spiritual boat, Lord. Let's see if it can handle some real storms. Usually our prayer is, Lord, give me peace. Give me smooth sailing on the seas of my life. But when we turn to the book of Acts, chapter 27, in effect, this is the climax of the book. It starts with a voyage on calm seas. 
But then the wind begins blowing and the waves start rising and then the hurricane hits full force and the waves crash against the hull. The crew is screaming. The captain is shouting orders. The tensions mount. All hope is gone. And then, and then, storms and shipwrecks and lives hanging in the balance. God comes to the rescue. But you see, this morning, this isn't just a chapter about how God saved a group of guys on a ship 2,000 years ago. This is how God deals with us right now, today, right where you're sitting. I read a story about a parakeet named Chippy. Chippy the parakeet, he never saw it coming. One second, he was peacefully perched in his cage. The next, he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. The problem began when Chippy's owner decided to clean his cage with a vacuum without removing him. She removed the attachment from the end of the hose, stuck the hose into the cage, and away she goes. And all of a sudden, the phone starts ringing, and she turns to answer it. And when she turns to answer it, she moves the vacuum home, and all of a sudden, <laughs> Chucky, Chippy got sucked in. The bird owner gasped, put the phone down, turned off the vacuum, opened up the bag, and there was Chippy. Still alive, but stunned. And since the dirt was covered with dust, since the bird was covered with dust and dirt, she grabbed him and raced to the bathroom, turned on the faucet, and held Chippy underneath the running water. And then realizing that Chippy was soaked and shivering, she did what any compassionate bird owner would do. We've, we've owned birds, and I can guarantee I've never done this. <laughs> she reached for the hairdryer and blasted the pet with hot air. Poor Chippy never knew what hit him. A few days after the trauma... This was actually in a newspaper. A few days after the trauma, the reporter who had initially written about the event contacted the owner to see how the bird was recovering. Well, she replied, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits and stares. <laughs> Ever felt that way? Sucked in, washed up, and blown over? Sure you have. And like these men we'll read about today, you've been on some stormy seas in your life. You've been plunged into the eye of the storm. Maybe it's a family disaster. Maybe it's death or disease or divorce. Maybe it's a financial storm. Maybe you've lost your job or have gotten heavily into debt. And the lesson of chapter 27 for us is not primarily that God delivered 276 men that day, although that is a fantastic lesson. The lesson for you and for me is that God sees us through the storms of life. Amen. We begin on calm waters in chapter 27, verse 1. It says, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from, I'm probably going to get this wrong, Hadratium. <laughs> I read that so many times and I'm... I just kind of gave up hope on that word. About to sail for ports along the coast of the Prince province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. I believe, actually I'm convinced, that God, that God works in our lives in stormy times by putting the right people in the right places at the right time. 
With Julius, it started with a man. With Paul, it started with a man named Julius that we can read from this story. Now, the Bible, it doesn't give us a whole lot of background about who Julius was, but we do know that Julius was a man who showed kindness to Paul when kindness was exactly what he needed. Not only does he save Paul's life later on in the chapter, we'll read about that, but verse 3 tells us that he allowed him to go to see his friends inside him. Two other men were put there as well, mentioned in verse 2, and uh, starts out with, we boarded a ship. Uh, Many scholars believe that uh, this individual that he's first talking about is Luke. Luke joined Paul in many journeys. He was known to be Paul's sidekick and trusted friend for many years, and once Again, I believe God put him on this boat. The last person that God put in Paul's life that we can see from the scripture is called Aristarchus. That's how God works. When we leave today, you're not going to remember the names of these individuals that I mentioned were on the boat with Paul. But what we will remember is that whether we like it or not, we need each other. He places the right people in your life at the right time. God will not abandon us or leave us alone. It has happened too many times in my life for me not to believe that God ministers in this way to us. Years ago when we were in Miramichi, we had run out of food. And uh, I had lost my job. And we were just uh, you know, trying to get by at that time. And I was passing out resume after resume, not getting anywhere, frustrated. And this went on for 10 months. And uh, couldn't get a phone call out of anybody. We ran out of food. And Levi, he was just little at the time. And so we said, okay, what are we going to do? And, of course, we were too proud to tell anyone that, that we were going through anything. So we did the only thing that we knew to do, and that was pray. Pray that God would provide. And I remember uh, going through all this. The next morning, one of our dearest friends knocked on our front door. When we opened up to them, they were standing there with bags of groceries. The storms of life aren't meant to be weathered alone. God will put people in our lives at the right time, at the right place, who will be with us through the storm. Another way that God deals with storms is warning us away from them. We can see this in verse 7. He, he tried his very best. It's, uh, we made slow headway, it says, for many days and had difficulty arriving off Snidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Cree, opposite Salomon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lassia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo into our lives also. Sometimes we're headed for a storm and we don't see it. And in this case, God put Paul in the lives of these individuals that were on that boat that day to warn them that trouble was coming if they did not turn back. The writer of Proverbs, he says in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15, the way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. I thank God for the warnings that he gives us God puts warnings into our life. And when God does that, the best thing that we can possibly do is listen to them. Most of the time, however, if we will admit, when we're set on a course of action, the last thing that we want to do is listen. 
Now, I'm speaking to you men out there here this morning. I know we get on those journeys on the road, and our wife tells us, I think we're going the wrong way. Actually, I play, I play a terrible joke on my wife repeatedly. I play on her gullibility because the fact remains is that uh, I like to tease. <laughs> so we'll get going along in an area that I know she's never been to before. She doesn't know the route, and I'll go, oh, my goodness. She'll go, what? I, I don't know where we are. Mark, you're joking. You're joking. <laughs> no, no, honestly, I don't know where we're going. Um, I know, I'm, I'm terrible. I'll repent afterwards. The crew decided to ignore Paul's advice. Look at verse 11. It says, but the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in, there was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, and so they weighed and uh, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Two mistakes that the centurion made here. First, in verse 11, he followed the advice of the experts rather than God's spokesman. And second, in verse 12, he followed majority rule. Do you know how dangerous that is? Twelve men, for example, went into the land of Canaan to spy it out. Ten came back and said, there are giants in the land. We look like grasshoppers to them. There's no way we can beat them. Let's just give up. But Joshua and Caleb, two of them, had a different report. When they looked at the land, instead of giant warriors, they saw a mighty God who could do anything. Look back over the history of the Israelites and take a look at all the disasters that took place because the majority ruled. Over and over, we find the prophets ostracized and alone, hated by the very people that they were sent to speak to. Why? Because the majority wasn't willing to listen to God's message. I thank God for the voice of the man of God in my life. If pastor speaks into your life to send you a warning, listen. Listen. The story continues in verse 14. It says, before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. Down to verse 18, it says, We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they, shoot, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. God uses storms. Did you know that storms are some of God's best tools? And though I don't believe that God causes every storm, I do believe that He uses every storm. One of the ways that He uses them is to help us clear the decks. When the storm hits and your life is thrown upside down, that's when we start thinking about what's really important, isn't it? Sometimes we need to clear the decks. It gets cluttered with unimportant things. It gets cluttered with things that shouldn't have been there in the first place. God has used storms in my life to help me clear the decks. Verse 20 it goes on to say, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, the storm continued raging. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. 
Acts chapter 27, verse 20 is one of the saddest and yet one of the most power-packed passages in the entire Bible. It's sad whenever people give up hope. Sometimes when the night gets dark, we give up. Yes, God uses storms to help us clear the decks, but He also uses them to show us that we are powerless without Him. It says, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storms continued raging, we finally gave up hope of being saved. And that's when God sent the angel. Isn't God's timing amazing? He doesn't come, enter into our situation when we want him to or when we think he should. He could have sent the angel anytime. He could have sent it a week before. He could have told Paul before ever stepping onto the boat, hey, you're going to have a shipwreck, but everyone's going to be fine. But he didn't send it a week before. He waited until they gave up all hope of being saved by themselves. You see, they had done everything they could. They trimmed the sails. They dumped the cargo. They cleared the decks. They did everything that was humanly possible, and it wasn't until they exhausted all their ingenuity and all their resources that God intervened. Look at verse 23. Last night, an angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. It isn't until your deepest, darkest night. It isn't until all hope is gone, until you give up all hope of being saved on your own, that God says, it's going to be okay. I'm going to see you through. One of my favorite Bible stories took place in the Valley of Herod. And I'll quickly give an overview of it. Camped in the valley were 135,000 Midianites. Camped at the spring of Herod were 32,000 of Gideon's finest soldiers. Gideon, he was a man that followed after God, and God chose him to lead his people. And Gideon, showing either complete foolishness or utter faith in God, there's a fine line there, decided to attack them even though they were outnumbered by more than four to one. They get up early in the morning while it's still dark, and they start out, 32,000 men, about to fight a battle that they had no hope of winning on their own. These guys could count. They knew the Midianites had better weapons. They had more numbers. They had superior numbers to theirs. But before they got two steps, God spoke to Gideon. I love what he said. And I wish I could have seen Gideon's face when he said it. He said, Gideon, you're making a mistake. You have too many men. Now, I'm sure Gideon could count too. But to his credit, he didn't argue. God said, announce to the people that anyone who trembles with fear may turn back. You know how many turned back? 22,000. 22,000 were afraid and they turned back. And some simple math will tell you that they're left with 10,000. So now instead of 4 to 1, the odds are more like 13 to 1. And Gideon, again, had to be wondering why God was doing this. And so he goes to the Lord and says, okay, we're down to 10,000. Is that better? God said, no, still too many. This time they went down to the stream to drink, and every man who put his head down instead of watching for the enemy was sent home. And that left Gideon with a whopping, wait for it, 300 men. 
300 against 135,000. What do you think the men were thinking? God then does the strangest thing of all. As the men are sitting around the camp, sharpening their swords, honing them to a razor's edge, each of them thinking, how, how are we going to come about doing this? God's still speaking to Gideon. God's still directing their leader. Gideon, he walks into the camp, takes away their swords, and hands them three things. A trumpet, an empty jar, and a torch. Let that sink in for a moment. A trumpet, a jar, and an empty torch. Somebody had to ask the question, what do you expect us to do with all of this? Scare them to death? Exactly. Now, here's the plan. In the middle of the night, we're all going to march into their camp and blow our trumpets. We're going to blow our trumpets. And then I want you to take out your torch, which is hidden in your jar, and yell as loud as you can, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And so clutching their trumpets in one hand and their jars in the other, they went. They topped the hill, and there, spread out before them, was the vast army of the Midianites. It must have looked like a city. Everywhere they looked, there were tents and horses and chariots and fires that were set about. And down off the hill walked Gideon, and behind him walked 300 brave men. Gideon gave the order, and at that sound of 300 trumpets filling the air, 300 pots smashed on the ground, 300 torches lit up the parameter of the camp, and 300 voices shouted, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And then it happened. The Midianites, they burst from their tents, ran for their weapons, and as the terrified Israelites got ready to fight, the Midianites started killing each other. The enemy started fighting each other. It is impossible, but there they were, toe-to-toe, fighting each other, and those who weren't fighting started running. So what did the Israelites do? They started chasing them. Can you just picture it for a moment here this morning? 10,000, 100,000 men screaming, running across the desert, chased by 300 guys with trumpets. Hmm. God told Gideon in the seventh chapter of the book of Judges, let me read it to you. He explains why he did things the way that he did them. And sometimes this is the hardest part that we have. We don't understand why God does things the way that he does them. It doesn't make sense to us. But this is why. He says, in order that Israel may not boast that her strength has saved her. There's no way that you can say you did this on your own. It's only going to be people saying that had to be God. There's no other way that that could have been done. It had to be God. That report that you were given, there's no way that, that anything could have transpired, that anything could have changed in that situation except God. Except God. I led you the way that I did so that you couldn't boast that you did it on your own. That's what he's saying. It has to be said that if it wasn't for the Lord, we would not have won. It has to be said that if God didn't come through when he did, we wouldn't be here to tell the tale. Paul told the men about the angel. He told them they they were going to be saved. And then he made the definitive statement of chapter 27. He says in verse 25, So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God 
Somebody say, I have faith in God. That it will happen just as he told me. Exactly as what God promised, exactly as he said, that's what's going to happen. Amen. If we could all stand and I could have the music come back at this time. The day was June 19th, 1959. Fishing crews left the safety of the harbor in Eskumanak, New Brunswick. Now, many of you may not have heard where Eskumanak is, but it's about 30 minutes east of Miramichi. The fish were plentiful that week, but the Basin Am men remembers how the weather kept many fishermen ashore all week. And so when Friday came, and was a beautiful day. Almost every fisherman from that poor fishing community decided to go out. Eldor McIntyre had just turned 17. He went out on a fishing boat with his father and younger brother. It was calling for 25 mile an hour winds. No one knew that this day a hurricane would sweep in undetected. Their boats were primitive in that time, as you can see. They weren't like they are right now. These Men were real men. They went out onto the seas in what we would call today dinghies. <laughs> they had taken motors out of cars and fastened them to the deck of their boats with bent-over nails. Many of them didn't have radios. They had, the ones who did, they just had a car radio. There was no way that they could call back home and say what's going on. Just enough to hear the weather report. McIntyre said, for many years I still had goose pimples run all up my arm. I think about it here almost every day. It had been giving high winds all week, and what happened is that it wasn't supposed to come into the Miramichi Bay. It was supposed to keep on the coast and go in toward Newfoundland. The McIntyre men got into their boat, headed out, casting salmon nets and placing lobster pots. Fishing for cod while they waited, a hundred men went out. However, he said, my father during that time while he was cleaning the fish for us got suspicious that something terrible was going to happen. His father noticed the tides were moving quickly and that every big fish they caught that day had a sandstone in it. Weigh it down. Winds picked up as the evening progressed. The winds reached above 100 miles an hour with 50-foot waves. Thinking about it, he said, there's something different, and I'm not going to stay here, Aldo remembered. They decided to move further away from shore, went over to the nearby fishing boat of Jean-Louis, Jeffrey, and Lionel Richard. They told them that they weren't planning to stay in the area, but the Richard said that they would, they would ride it out. And as they got further back, as they got further out, their boat started taking on water, and the McIntyres decided to head back to the wharf. Eldor remembers they pulled into the safety of the wharf at around 1.30 in the morning. They didn't have a way of getting home, so the three decided to sleep in the cabin of the boat. Slept in their boat. In the morning, the men could hear the sound of other boats outside. He said, what sticks in my mind is that my cousin, you could hear him praying as the wind was pushing his voice to us praying just to be able to put his feet on the wharf and he made it in McIntyre said it still shakes him up to think about that faithful day 
life was great, I had a great life, he said, maybe, maybe the disaster has changed my course of life. I would probably say that's what it did. The three of them survived the disaster that day, but 35 did not. It was one of the greatest fishing disasters in all of Canada. And today a monument stands in the Escuminac Wharf as a reminder of this fateful day. Actually, my wife was telling me that when she was a kid, she used to walk by this monument and ask, what does this mean? And they would proceed to tell the story about that fateful day. Jolene's grandfather, Clorn, his name is on that plaque. He was in the middle of that storm. On his way back to the safety of the harbor, he came up on a boat that was in danger, and he noticed that there was a young man that had tied himself in a last-ditch effort to be saved. He thought, if the boat is going to survive the storm, I can too. And so he tied himself to the mast of that ship. Clorn threw him a lifeline and pulled him to the safety of their boat. And they, against all odds, made it back home. You see, every one of us will go through storms in our life. And when they come, I hope you trim the sails. I hope you dump the cargo and clear the decks of all the things that shouldn't be there. That's just weighing you down. And I hope you do everything humanly possible to deal with that storm. But most of all, I hope you listen to his voice. He is our lifeline. This morning, I just feel like he's tossing it a line to us here this morning, trying to bring us back into him. He is our lifeline. When you've exhausted every resource available and you feel hopeless, I hope you ask God to deliver you from the storm and believe him for it. Paul, he doesn't hold back any details in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he starts listing things that have happened to him in his life. He says, in verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Three times I sh suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils and waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. And despite all of these things transpiring in Paul's life, he didn't say, so I threw in the towel. I decided to give up it all because it wasn't worth it. No. In the very next chapter, when we turn over, he goes on to say that although all these things have happened to me, I have found in my weakest moments that God is made strong. This is what he says, verse 9, chapter 12. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, 
then am I strong. Maybe this morning you feel like Chippy who has been sucked in, washed up, and blown over. Maybe you feel like Paul, that no matter how much you try, storms just keep coming. But of this, you can be confident. Come hell or high water, He is with you. He is with you. You may have a memorial set in places that you go back to to signify the moments that God has seen you through some of the most treacherous times in your life. Disasters that change the course of your life. But today, the fact still remains that in whatever storm you are in right now, He is with you. He is with you. Thank you for joining us today. If you want more information, connect with us on our website at missionpoint.ca. God bless you.